as long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. It's that time for back to school, and your kids might have some questions, and they might even be feeling a certain way about going back to school, but we're going to sort through all that. Austin Gregg is a licensed clinical social worker with Connections Wellness Group, our guest on 710KURV. So back to school, what are some of the conflicting emotions that we have to deal with going back to school? You know, back to school, we are breaking from our routine that was summer that typically in comparison is a little bit more comfortable. So we're breaking that routine. We're going back in uh, to, to a school sometimes and most oftentimes it's a new grade and we're going back into a new routine. And so anytime that we have transitions, it's always notable to be mindful of what that might look like. We are wondering what's this new school year going to look like. We know that it's also going to be intellectually challenging. Uh, we're going to have to interact with our peers. And so some of the skills that maybe we had, you know, rested in summer, we're going back to in the school year. And there's always something to be said about that when it comes to mental health. What are some good ways to bone up, get us prepared mentally for going back to school and that whole routine? You know, so routine is such a good word. I think that we can practice a little bit of it and emulate it. You know, you know, sometimes the recommendation is like, oh, match the bedtimes, like wake up at the, the right time, go to bed at the right time. And while I can see some efficacy in it, I, I think it's a little bit bigger than that. I think one, we're affording some space to the new experience. And while it might seem silly, just actually practicing it and, and setting a routine that way. We take out the maximum number of unknowns in the schedule so that we get to interlace a little bit more comfortability. Getting up at the right time and having that routine, the purpose of that is less about routine and more about typically when I'm well rested, I'm better at a communicator, I'm better in my social events, I'm better in my classes. And so coming in with the right energy. And the, and the last stage is maybe sometimes for the parents. Um, the last thing that we would want to do is uh, run late on the first day of school and just be stressed trying to get through the traffic and yelling um, at the road like that really doesn't set our kiddos up for success on their first day and so those are a few recommendations oh yeah i'll be the first one to tell you the first day of school the first couple of weeks of school remembering where all the school zones are <laughs> is a big deal when you're trying the police to get will help you out with from <laughs> from point a to point b on your regular morning drive and your afternoon drive as well our guest is austin Gregg, a licensed clinical social worker with connections wellness group our guest on 710 KURV. davis rankin your question Okay. Our guest is Austin Gregg, a licensed clinical social worker, CEO of Connections Wellness Group, our guest on 710KURV. Social issues, and am I going to fit in? Are they going to make fun of me for the red dinosaur t-shirt that I'm wearing oh. to class? So how do you deal with some of the first day jitters? Oh, first day jitters. One, make them normal, because the last thing we want to do is like, oh, I'm jittery on the first day of school. I must be the only one feeling like that. That makes it 10 times worse. Totally needless. 
Uh, red dinosaur shirts are pretty cool, in uh, my opinion. But joking aside, <laughs> one of the things that we can do uh, as parents and guardians is encourage that peer and social support in that development. One of the things in adolescence that we're working towards is this idea of identity versus confusion. And as we go through maturation, as we go through puberty, there's going to be some oscillation between the two. One of the things that are really good promoters of social influence and self-esteem is having a peer support group. And whenever we get to go to school or go to class with people we know, sometimes that takes away the fear of, will I know anyone? Who do I sit with at lunch? And when we stabilize those facets, we might find that our largest stressors are ameliorated altogether. How do, what do you tell children that have a hard time making friends? They may be introverted, they may just be quiet, they may just keep to themselves. But how do you, how do you encourage or even guide them through the process of making new friends? That's such a great question, and it's such a needed topic. You know, introverts, extroverts, I, I myself was a pretty big introvert. When we participate in things, maybe outside of school or even clubs inside of school, we want to create the maximum amount of opportunities to make meaningful connections. Those connections allow us as professionals to succeed, but equally in adolescence and school age, it also allows us to succeed. And as parents and as guardians, promoting the maximum amount of opportunities to that, it's a skill that comes naturally to some and it's really challenging to others. But it nevertheless is a skill that we benefit when we work that muscle. So as guardians, creating those opportunities, initially and eventually something will spark. We all have interests and there are other people that share our interests. And when we can self-identify what those interests are, we have an opportunity to, to develop a social support system. Our guest is Austin Gregg, a licensed clinical social worker, our guest on News Talk 710 KURV. We're talking about going back to school. And so for any challenges that might happen in the during the school day, school uh, during the school year, I mean, we talk about, you know, pressure on, on kids from parents that are really, what's a good, what's a gentle way of putting this? A little overzealous in pressuring children to perform well, both academically and in sports and athletics. How do you understand when to pump the brakes a little bit as a parent? Excellent question. You're right. Part of our role as parents is to encourage and really optimize and try to aspire us to reach our best. But we can sometimes overdo it and the effects and symptoms of overdoing it are actually the consequence of not doing it at all. One of the ways that we can describe and ensure that we have an appropriate balance is, is twofold. One, whenever we provide criticism, constructive criticism, that we also have an ability to offset it with some of the positives. Hey, you did really awesome in math, uh, but history left a, a lot to be desired there. In what ways can I support that? Or how do we focus on that? Um, so having some offset, that way it's not just disqualifying all the positives and looking exclusively at the negatives, which is a cognitive distortion uh, that we treat. But that's, that's going to be important to have that balance there. And when we have those types of conversations, that allows us to be edified a little bit more. It allows us to model the conversations. And it, and it gets us somewhere. It, it allows us to retain our motivation in our endeavor to improve ourselves without discouraging us um, from our failures. Okay. Our guest is Austin Gregg, a licensed clinical social worker, CEO of Connections Wellness Group, our guest on 710KURV. How do you deal with bullying in this day and age? It's become such a big topic. Yeah, it really has. And the idea of bullying and especially cyberbullying, 
the impacts of that are, are great. Uh, they're, they're really tough uh, to deal with. Whenever I think about that, I tend to go and think about mental health. Um, bullying and cyberbullying, I think that we can classify and agree categorically, that does not improve mental health. Uh, that's, that's mean behavior. There is an outcome to behavior such as that that can be treated. We're talking about the idea of self-esteem. We're talking about the idea of depression, anxiety, um, isolation, and withdrawal. As parents and guardians, we can observe these behaviors. And whenever we start seeing signs that the behaviors exist, to have a conversation built on trust. And when we have the conversation, anytime we're talking about mental health and we're focusing on mental health, when we're good in that headspace, we perform better in all other areas of life. So unfortunately, it is a dynamic at play, and what we can do best is keep that conversation open. Whenever our kiddos um, enter into the car, whenever they enter into the house after school, ask these open-ended questions, not just like, how was your day? Because the answer is going to be fine. It is these- <laughs> Guilty. I am so guilty of that. <laughs> it's these uh, open-ended questions. And for the first bit, it it might not produce anything meaningful, but if we continue to do it day after day after day, what we really communicate is, I care about the details. And when we care about the details, we're more willing to share the uncomfortable details when we're sharing a lot of the comfortable ones. Our guest is Austin Gregg, a licensed clinical social worker, CEO of Connections Wellness Group, our guest on 710KURV. What uh, effect will the uh, Uvalde massacre have? Is there any way to safely predict how that's going to work? You know, in terms of prediction, I'm unsure if we can safely do it, but there is a lot that can be said. First and foremost, I think we all still wear really heavy hearts around that tragedy. Um, it's It's a really tough thing. And it's something that we need to be honest that our students are thinking about. So whenever I think about parents or even guardians, creating a safe place to have that conversation is much more helpful than just pretending as though it never happened and it's just something that we don't talk about and that lives in this darkness. And so leaning into that, it, it might be a little uncomfortable, but again, that's okay. The truth is a narrative will exist whether we talk about it or not. And so when we know that fact, why not participate in the narrative and have some healthy conversations around it in a safe place? And when we do that, I think that we, the outcome of this is much more benefited when we prioritize conversations like this. Well, other than I've read about some of the Uvalde kids, they don't want to go back. Um, there, I think have been expressions of, am I going to be killed? I, mean, I don't, That's not what I've heard, but that's kind of, am I going to die kind of thing, which strikes me as remarkable for preteens to be thinking about that what do you bring it up or do you if your kids don't say anything do you just not say anything they you know they may not be thinking about it yeah it is my opinion that it is okay to bring up and talk about we're thinking about it either way um we need to have conversations about uncomfortable things and even as parents or guardians whenever we have conversations about uncomfortable topics we model a fantastic teachable skill uh, to our kids. And while we think about, will this happen to me? That is a rational thought with the exposure that we've had. And so it's an okay conversation to have, especially when we have active shooter drills. Um, We don't necessarily want to set up our kiddos for like, what is an active shooter? Uh, Why am I even doing this? Unfortunately, a narrative does exist. And so creating a safe place to have the conversation is typically more beneficial 
than simply avoiding it altogether. Our okay. guest is Austin Gregg, a licensed clinical social worker, CEO of Connections Wellness Group, our guest on 710KURV. Occasionally, I'll, I'll read about some young person, preteen, who's uh, committed suicide and uh, bullying will be part of the conversation. He or she was being bullied. I'm kind of astounded that do, how are the schools handling that in your view? You know, I think that the schools are, are being able to talk about, hey, this is important. Hey, this is a dynamic. I think it'll always be important for there to be internal and external partnerships with that. There are experts all along. And what I think about it is we're having the right conversations. And again, this is one of the uncomfortable ones, but it is an undoubted truth that it exists. The more that we have the right conversations, the more that we can ask the right kind of questions. And when we have that, we have the right kind of plans. We need to have these plans to safeguard to the best of our ability. So although it does happen, as long as we're talking about it, it doesn't live in this darkness. And I think as a, an entire society and as an entire mental health stigma, we're making progress in the right direction. And the more and more plans, the more and more uh, support systems that we can put in place to avoid outcomes like that, um, it's certainly why I show up every day to work. How do you maintain the balance as a parent to keep that open line of communication between you and your kid where say you know they go to a party that they're not supposed to go to and you know, something goes awry and the first thing that they they want to cry out for help and be like man i need to call somebody to get me out of here but at the same time i don't want them to know that i was out here in the first place how do you how do you how do you how do you maintain that that fine line that knife's edge um well i think uh Here's the, the sides of that knife there. One, your trusting relationship. Um, I know even if I am in an uncomfortable or bad situation that I shouldn't be in and I can call, they will help me in that. That's going to be important. The second, like consider just making uh, an agreement, a gentleman's agreement. Here's my expectation that you don't participate in these type of behaviors. And that's important to me. But I want you to know that in the middle of the night, if I receive a text message that makes no sense in this world, but has an address, I will go pick you up. We won't say anything in the car and I'll bring you home safely. That's my deal I make with you. We might have to talk about that in the morning, but at least I have that escape route that I know I've made this deal. And that gives me this lifeline when I find myself in a situation I really don't want to be in anymore. Personally, with, with my son, we had a, like a code word. If we were in public, which is different than being in private, obviously, but if, if we were in public and out somewhere and he, he was in a situation he didn't feel comfortable with, we would just say something along the lines of, hey, do you want to go eat at so-and-so place? And then that would be the, the sign. Okay, yeah, sure, let's go. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah. hung I'm hungry too. Let's take off. Exactly. That's exactly the methodology in these things too. Yeah. Austin, thanks a lot for your time and, and, and the information that you've given us. Lots of great tips here today. That's Austin Gregg, licensed clinical social worker. CEO of Connections Wellness Group joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. 
This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. We now head to Brownsville and the National Weather Service. Uh, meteorologist. The world's most dangerous meteorologist, Barry Goldsmith, joins us. He and Jeremy Katz, I saw in a Facebook post recently, you guys headed out to Falcon Dam and Falcon State Park, and you guys got to see the reservoir. Uh, what, did, what did you get to see over there? Well, Zach, not a lot of water, that's for sure. Um, the levels <laughs> okay. are really low, lowest I've ever seen out there. Of course, I've only been here 15 years. Uh, but that does match what we have in our data, which is the, the lowest we've seen since 2002. And it's still going down. So places where the water should have been um, had receded uh, tens of feet, if not yards, into the lake. And there's a boat ramp that <laughs> goes to nowhere right now as the water uh, rarely gets up there these days. But when it does, they can use it and head on out to fish. But now you've got to take your boat all the way down to the shoreline. Even then, um, if you don't have enough draft, it's, it might get stuck in the shallows. So it's, uh, it's really low out there, and it's just desert heat right now, at least uh, for the last week. I saw this uh, Facebook post from the National Weather Service in Brownsville. You and, and Mr. Katz went out there, and these pictures are very, very powerful. I shared them on our 710 KURV Facebook page, just how dire the, the situation is. You can tell where the water used to be and is no longer there. It's incredible. And so we're talking about, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, and the main thing behind that is we, we just haven't had sufficient rainfall um, persistently in the basin. That means not only Falcon, but also Amistad, and as well as the tributaries and the headwaters in the Rio Grande Basin that feed each of them. Uh, going back more than two years, in fact, going back into the mid to late 2010s, we haven't had a persistent amount of water there. So um, as I was doing an interview with another entity last week, uh, really since uh, 2019, we've been more on the drier side than the wetter side. And to be honest, what we need is a system like a Hurricane Alex and its remnants to drop, you know, 20, 30, 50, 70 inches of rainfall into the Rio Grande Basin, meeting the Sierra Madre and have that flow down through the through other dams and other tributaries into our reservoirs. That That's how short we are right now. Uh, refresh our memories. How big was Hurricane Alex? <clears throat> so Alex made landfall near La Pesca in central Tamaulipas, and then it drifted westward and weakened quickly to a tropical depression, but then it moved a little bit wet north of west and just sat over the Sierra Madre, kind of west-northwest of Zapata County, and uh, ultimately eased its way up to, say, places west of Del Rio and uh, Amistad, and it just pounded water in day after day, 10, 15 inches of rain for five to six days straight. And ultimately, that added up to what we think was about 70 inches of rainfall in those mountains. And on the east side, it flowed downhill and ultimately filled both of our reservoirs, which was a big difference between 2011 and today. A lot of uh, folks in Texas are comparing this summer to 2011. But unlike uh, 2011, we had plenty of water to, available in both reservoirs to flow out. 
We don't have that this year, so it's really a, a double whammy in terms of the valley's water. Joining us on 710 KURV from the National Weather Service in Brownsville is Barry Goldsmith. And this brings me to my next question. Tropical coverage-wise, tropical coverage 2022, how, what's, uh, why has it been a slow season so far? So it actually hasn't been slow. Um, the normal number of named cyclones through the early part of August is three. And that's where we were. Um, I think by the end of this week, the normal will be four. And interestingly, there's a wave way off of Africa right now that could very well become number four. And that is very timely with the season. Um, one thing that we had a discussion on on the uh, NOAA conference call last week was the reality that uh, the one-month lull that we saw from early July until now is actually not uncommon. We had a similar lull in 2020, which of course became a huge season at the end, although it wasn't quite as much. We had a couple of storms in there in that window. But last year, we had 21 storms in total, right? And we had a a 30-plus day lull that restarted on August 11th, and then continued really strongly all the way through the end of September with an average of 2.4 named systems a week. Uh, out in the Atlantic Basin. So I'm not saying that's what we're going to see right now, but we are entering the peak of the season and things are beginning to start to look more favorable off the African coast. The Gulf of Mexico, on the other hand, we're not seeing anything right now and there's no model data suggesting anything like that in the next seven to 10 days or longer. I must apologize to my co-host. I'm hogging the guest. Davis Rankin, your question. Uh, Do the the, uh, two reservoirs are fed by rivers or, or streams or whatever from uh, in the U.S. and Mexico. What are the principal tributaries to Falcon? Do you, do you all watch those? Do, do you have insight into things over there? Uh, yeah, we do. We can actually look at the information that's publicly available on the International Boundary and Water Commission's website, that's ibwc.gov, and they post the U.S. uh, tributaries that feed into the reservoirs, as well as all of the Mexican tributaries that feed there. Um, There are a number of them that feed uh, a few rivers there. One is the Rio Salado, which uh, extends kind of from Falcon uh, Lake and Falcon Dam uh, northwestward up into the Sierra Madre, Mm-hmm. Then we look at the Rio Conchos, which goes uh, towards Amistad, but there are tributaries there that drop off and, and get towards uh, our our area as well. We also look at the Rio San Juan. Now, the San Juan does not flow into the reservoirs. It actually flows into uh, Mexican reservoirs known as Marte Gomez and El Cuchillo, and then water from there can be released and end up at the Rio Grande in Rio Grande City, as in east of the reservoir, and then it can flow down river and uh, provide water supply for the valley. So it's a very complicated maze of waterways that supplies the water. But uh, the Rio Salado, there's a reservoir and a dam there known as Venustiano Carranza. It is at 8% capacity right now. I've never seen it that low. And the primary reservoir and dam that feeds the Conchos, which goes into Amistad, that's known as Lake Luis Leon. That is at 13% today. Once again, I haven't seen it that low in my 15 years here. So the bottom line is both the U.S. and the Mexican tributaries, as well as the reservoirs that could release water, they're pretty empty too. 
Occasionally, storms will come from the Pacific and they'll get up into the mountains near Monterey. I don't have a map in front of me, but then that can be beneficial to us. When is hurricane season in the Pacific? So we look for activity to turn the corner rather than move westward, say, west of Baja, California, west of the Mexican coastline and out into the open Pacific before decaying. We start looking for those storms to recurve a little bit, meaning going into, say, um, the Gulf of California, uh, towards Sinaloa, Mexico, and ultimately the remnants going into New Mexico and Arizona, sometimes pushing even farther east, getting to Monterey. And that begins in late September and tends to peak in October, maybe early November. And that's a big if. That assumes that the Pacific season continues as it has right now. It's been busy out there. That assumes that it continues and doesn't wane away. Because if that happens, then the opportunity for cyclones to make that turn just evaporates. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have to hope that there's a few out there that can do that. It, it won't provide the kind of water that a Hurricane Alex would do that could you know, get us closer to full, but yeah. at least it would help. So uh, we have to hope for something like that, but there's no guarantee that Pacific's a, a real wild card when it comes to recurvature. And, and finally, am I, I was, I've always believed that the, the window for us for most rainfall is from August 15 to September 15. Am I, am I right about that or am I wrong? You're not too far, Davis. It's uh, August 15th, indeed, is when we start to pick up our daily rainfall rates again. Uh, but that continues through about October 5th, October 10th. So it's about okay. another month longer. The entire month of September is wet, and that peaks, uh, meaning wet relative to the rest of the year, and, and that peaks in the second and third week of the month. So if we can get rain in the valley, at least, that would help us in the short term. But the question becomes, will that rain be able to make it uh, west of the valley into the Rio Grande Plains, and especially up in those foothills in the mountains of the Sierra Madre Oriental? If we can get a system to do that, whether it's a wave or series of waves all the way up to a hurricane, that would be the, the most beneficial to get that water in the reservoir. Anything short of that, we're still going to be hurting for the amount of water we need, especially going into what could be a dry and warm late fall and winter and then that's the uh, uh, $64 million question regarding agricultural and um, wet and dry land growth of crops coming in the next spring, in, in the next season. So uh, this season, a lot of dry land crops may not make it, but the irrigation that starts the growing season next year could be in jeopardy if we don't see the kind of rainfall we need to at least give those reservoirs more water than they, they have right now. And before we go, uh, we're speaking with... Barry Goldsmith from the National Weather Service in Brownsville. How, how much rain did you say we needed again? So to fill the reservoir, we need to have, I would say, 50 to 70 plus inches of rain. That's five zero to seven zero plus inches of rain over the Sierra Madre that can flow downhill into the watershed, into the Rio Grande Basin, and ultimately reach those reservoirs. Anything short of that will not fill it. And even if it fills, it may only be three quarters, but that's good. That's better than what we have now. If we just see five inches, 10 inches over those mountains over the next month, uh, that will stabilize the drop, but it probably won't add much to what we already have, which is very little. So bottom line is we need a lot of rain out there for the reservoir. Our hope for the valley is that we get rain overhead. We had some of that today. Uh, we're going to see some dry weather in the next few days. And then another system comes in from the east that could moisten us up 
come late Thursday night into the early part or the middle part of the weekend. And that will be good for our local gardens and our yards and some of the detention ponds. It may not last long. It could dry out again, but at least it would help temporarily. But it really wouldn't do much for the reservoir unless we get some kind of a big tropical series of tropical waves that can get all the way out there or more likely what we need is some kind of a Hurricane Alex-type system. We don't want a Beulah. Beulah can come over the valley and cause a lot of other headaches, but unfortunately that's the kind of system that would create the amount of water that would be needed to fill those reservoirs for a multi-year usage uh, ability versus just a little bit that wouldn't get us very far into next spring. Yeah, that's what we need, the right kind of hurricane. That'd be amazing. Uh, Mr. Goldsmith, thanks a lot for stopping by and giving us the report. That's Barry Goldsmith with the National Weather Service in Brownsville joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. The Biden administration, the Department of Homeland Security, they said late Monday they are preparing very quickly to end the Trump era Remain in Mexico program and will no longer send asylum seekers back across the border to await a decision on their applications for U.S. protection. Uh, We need to bone up again on immigration law and how Mm -hmm. that whole thing works. Plus, uh, find out the the process for Abbott sending migrants to D.C. and New York City. And I can't think of a better person than Manuel Diaz, immigration expert from the Diaz Law Firm, joining us on your 956 Drive Home. So I guess from the very beginning, when you find some, when Border Patrol finds somebody out in the field, what's the the whole process like? Hey, good afternoon. Well, hey. the, the the process starts when uh, obviously the immigrant is uh, approaches one of the points of um, entry, and it's either identified usually by immigration officials and apprehended at that point, and that starts the immigration case against uh, deporting that immigrant uh, if he comes without legal authorization. The twist in what Abbott is doing arose from Operation Lone Star uh, when he issued an executive order allowing law enforcement to detain individuals uh, without it being clear what uh, those detentions are being for, and then also allowing them to transport immigrants to the port of entry, which is something that was unprecedented. And by the way, it's important to uh, make it very clear that the Supreme Court has clearly established that immigration enforcement is left to the federal government, not to the state's government. So with the executive order that Abbott issued on July 7th, that's what's putting all of this at play. Davis Rankin, your question. 
my question, I guess, would be, I mean, there's a th- we have a thousand questions, but um, yeah. Border Patrol detains somebody, determines that they are not here lawfully, does whatever they have to do, paperwork to write them down and make sure people, I guess, we know they're here and then sends them on their way, however, however they do that. And what they tell us is at that point, they have no more responsibility. They're not responsible to get them to the bus station or wherever they're going to go. Um, what What is unlawful or what do you believe is unlawful about <clears throat> them getting on a bus or whatever in DPS, Department of Public Safety, taking them down to a port of entry, which down here would be along the border? I don't know what's supposed to happen then. Well, the Constitution protects uh, anybody in the United States, whether U.S. citizens or uh, non-U.S. citizens, from illegal detentions. And yeah. that, this is what's putting that at play. Uh, oh. The executive order that Abbott issued uh, instructs uh, law enforcement to detain individuals without reasonable suspicion or probable cause, which is the main um, problem here. It's, it's uh, causing... Um, violations of civil liberties. Well, they know that they're here unlawfully because I just they got them from the border patrol, and so border patrol tells them, "Hey, these guys are here illegally." And I'm not playing with you. I'm just saying, well, wouldn't that solve that problem? Well, well, well. It's very clear from the reports that the transfer is not from immigration officials over to law enforcement. It's the other way around. It's when law enforcement is detaining uh, immigrants for immigration for their immigration status and transporting them to immigration officials at port of entries so based on what's been documented by the news outlets it, it's the other way around why hadn't this been taken to court and definitively settled i'm not asking you why you well, haven't done it <laughs> somebody done it <laughs> Right. And and we can expect a lot of litigation arising from this. The executive order was issued on July 7th, so it's fairly new. And there are already um, different oh, okay. um, immigrant protection organizations that have voice concerns, the ACLU taking the lead on that. And um, we can expect multiple suits uh, being filed as a result okay. of this executive order. Manuel Diaz huh. is with the Diaz Law Firm. He handles many different types of law, immigration being one of them. He's our guest on your nine five six drive home as we're making, as we're as we're kind of brushing up on how the whole process works. Uh, yeah. So it's, this is this is probably like a a really bad way of explaining law, but you you can probably hold my hand and take me the rest of the way. It, a lot of law is essentially. I can do that until they say I can't anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> I can hold up law well, liquor stores until they tell me to stop. It, it, it's not designed to be that way, of course. Part of the right. challenge here is that uh, many legal scholars um, and, and different uh, observers to what's going on have clearly identified that Abbott is taking positions that, have, that are unprecedented. And he's stepping into areas where we can anticipate a lot of litigation is going to ensue, as, as previously yeah. mentioned. Um, now, people that are observing his uh, it from the political aspect uh, believe that these are political maneuvers because he's in a re-election and he wants to uh, secure his 
position for for the next term. So we're we're crossing the lines between politics and law, which uh, often happens. The sad thing is that it's happening uh, in this case while uh, he's he's. We have a humanitarian yeah. crisis that we're dealing with, and the steps that he's taking um, while he's trying to be politically savvy are affecting thousands of people. We're talking with um, Manuel Diaz, who is originally from Brownsville, and he traded right. the traffic there for the traffic in the mid-cities, I suppose, in North Texas. Um, yeah, I, I don't know about Zach, but I saw what the governor did as overtly political and it got him to the kind of the it, can can i defend myself though if you're gonna if you're gonna what? say that davy <laughs> can what? i just no because like like mr diaz said here that it's it we're in unprecedented territory I know, unprecedented I know. territory we're in we're in kind of in a no man's land right now right so I know. there has to be some sort of uh law or something already in the books that he's kind of interpreting kind yeah. of stretching kind of maneuvering uh he's, twisting flexing around to yeah. where he thinks he can get away with it until, which is why I said my my stupid roundabout way of saying it that you, basically you can do that until somebody tells you you can't, in which the Supreme Court or the Texas Supreme Court would would essentially yeah. step in well, and basically say no, this is not what we meant by that when we when when that law was written. Well, yeah, I, 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 it seems yeah. to me, Mr. Diaz, if he wins whichever if I may whatever add happens. Something which you you made a good point. He's using the disaster proclamation. Um, as an executive order in um, bringing this about, uh, giving those instructions to law enforcement to make these detentions and transportations. Uh, and this has commonly uh, become known as Operation Lone Star. So that's where his position, his legal position arises from. And that's what I was mentioning. We can anticipate a lot of litigation uh, mm -hmm. being ensued uh, due to um, him using a disaster proclamation to enforce immigration laws, which, again, the Supreme Court has made it very clear that immigration laws are to be left to the federal authorities. Yeah. Mr. Mr. Diaz, what's your view of, of what the governor's doing? I'm trying to think. He, when when they catch somebody on private property, somebody here is here unlawfully on private property, the DPS will take them into custody and put them in a jail somewhere till they can be prosecuted on a trespassing charge. I've if if, if there's statistics out there, I haven't seen them, but um, I thought that was actually pretty clever. Um, and, and do you think that's lawful? Aside from whether you think it's clever or well, not, I thought. Go ahead. <laughs> well. Well, the, the law is pretty clear that law enforcement can arrest, number number one, they can detain somebody whenever there's reasonable suspicion that the person is committing or committed a crime. And for law enforcement to be able to arrest that individual, they need to have reasonable suspicion. At that point, it's very common and the law allows for that person to be transported to a jail. The twist here is that based on the way that the executive order is written, it is unclear as to whether um, the executive order allows uh, law enforcement to not have to uh, establish the, the reasonable suspicion and the um, probable cause uh, requirements for that uh, detention to be made. And not only the detention, but the transport of those immigrants not to the jails to the ports of entry mm -hmm. 
which makes yeah. uh, it a, a very different type of situation. This yeah, is a like, good transition to the yeah, Washington, um, D.C. and New York City question. Uh, is this the same? Uh, is this an extension of that, busing them to some other place outside yeah. of Texas? Yeah, that's that's a question that that we all have because authorities, both state and federal, have failed to answer uh, what these folks are being arrested for, where the immigrants are being transported. We understand that some of these buses are going to D.C. and New York, but yeah. it's unclear as to as to whether there are other folks being transported by other means. And uh, finally, it's not very clear as to what's happening once uh, the immigrants are turned over. Uh, however, as as you mentioned. These um, bus rides are an extension of this uh, Operation Lone Star that uh, that the governor started through the executive order. Does he not have, does the governor not have the authority, or I don't see how he has the authority to put somebody on a bus, unless they've been paroled into the U.S. or whatever you call it. Sorry, sorry hey, Davey, we, we've spoken to somebody who had right. said that it has to be voluntary. For them to get on the bus, just like it's ask them, hey, this weird. Is the, like you can't force them to get on the bus, that, right? Right, Mr. Diaz. That, that is correct. That is, is absolutely okay. correct. For you to be able to force them, you have to have some uh, um, power to detain that individual, and that arises either out of uh, criminal or immigration laws, as as oh. we discussed. <laughs> the information is a little bit um, uncertain at this point, and some reports are being made that they're voluntary transfers. But again, there's so many questions around yeah. this, and this is an unprecedented area that we can anticipate multiple lawsuits being filed. Yeah, voluntary in quotes, perhaps, uh, but um, or maybe, they, maybe they look at it like I do. Hey, a free trip. <laughs> and then... Um, we have well, a thousand. That's, that's a, when, that's when are we going to find too, out, Davey? Huh? That's another thing too, Davey. Is yeah. uh, not only so, uh, Mr. Diaz. There is a there was a story that I think I read over the weekend. A lot of or, let me backtrack. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, had said that he had been expecting, I think, maybe forty migrants that were heading over mm -hmm. to New York City via the Abbott administration on these buses. Fourteen showed up because they got off along the the bus stops along the way. <laughs> so if yes, if uh, I, I there's no guarantee well. they're going to make it to New York City, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yes, uh, it, it's um, been reported that they were getting off along the way. So it causes even more questions as, as to what's mm -hmm. going to happen to these folks. All right, thanks and a lot for spending some time with us and, and clearing a lot of that up. That's Manuel Diaz. Immigration expert, immigration attorney with the DS Law Firm, joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day. And special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, let's not enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. 
Another one of our many friends that joins the show from time to time is Patrick Svitek from the Texas Tribune. And we're going to get a an eye on the political battlefield that is the state of Texas currently. And I love the way that you've set this up in your uh, article from Monday as Republicans and Democrats prioritize legislative races. Uh, the battlefield heading into November is much different than what it was two years ago. Let's talk about that for a second, Patrick. What 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 has changed in the past two years as we gear up for November? Well, the big difference is that the majority in the Texas House is not up for grabs this summer like it was last summer. If you recall, you know there was a uh, you know uh, a big push involving National Democrats to flip the Texas House last summer. They viewed as as many as two dozen seats in play. The Democrats were, I think, nine seats away from the majority. Of course, we all know how that went. They came up woefully short. They didn't gain any seats on balance. Um, and then what happened in between then and now is the redistricting process, and Republicans control that process in Austin. And so they redrew the state house district map to be uh, more secure for themselves. And so that reduced the number of competitive seats um, that are on the ballot uh, in November. Um, but as the story points out, while the majority may not be on the line this November, there are still a number of races um, that each side views as important to their broader uh, strategies for gaining power statewide. Uh, and if you look at the, you know, the three races that everyone agrees are the most competitive in November, uh, you know, two of them are, you know, in or near uh, South Texas. And the one I think that is at the top of the list for most is the new House District 37 uh, in Cameron County. I, I don't know how to say this without exposing my source at the time. I've, I've heard interesting news about a lot of our races here in South Texas. Uh, which way is the money flowing at this point? So far, you've seen uh, a lot of Republican investment uh, in South Texas this election cycle, both from statewide groups and from national groups. This was obviously uh, a big point of contention in the special election for the 34th congressional districts. The national Democratic groups largely stayed out of that, while the national and statewide Republican groups poured in, um, you know, multiple millions of dollars to get Myra Flores elected. And so, so far, most of the significant investment we've seen in these races has been on the Republican side. I see. Joining us on 710KURV from the Texas Tribune is Patrick Zvitek. Davis Rankin, your question. The, uh, the new district in eastern part of the valley was occupied by a guy named Dominguez, who'd been a Cameron County commissioner, and then he ran, was elected, defeated Rene Veda, and then they screwed him at redistricting and made his district such that much more Republican. Am I right about that? Yeah, they basically uh, made this a toss-up district. It's a district that, if it were around during the 2020 election, it's a district that Joe Biden would have carried only by two percentage points which in the current environment is yeah. considered very, very competitive, um, given, you know, the current environment is, is kind of favoring Republicans at this point. Um, so, but the creation of this district was very contentious. Um, it basically, Republicans kind of snuck it, uh, you know, yeah. into the map 
overnight mm-hmm. during the redistricting debate late last no. year or, or last fall. I think it was October, November. Uh, and they kind of rammed it through. I think the amendment that, you know, created this new competitive district there only passed by like two votes or something like that. And you had other South Texas lawmakers, you know, who this would impact speak out very uh, vocally on the floor that night and say, I wasn't consulted on this. Um, you know, this is a, a power grab. And so, it, you know, like I said, I'm no. basically kind of shoved into the map overnight. Um, literally, I mean, I remember watching the debate and it was, uh, it was at least yeah. outside where I was at. Um, and so, you know, very contentious uh, creationist district. Um, but both sides have obviously moved beyond the, the you know, the, um, the contention or controversy surrounding the creation. And, and they're now treating this as a battleground district and planning to fight really hard in November. So to, to <coughs> it seems to me that both, lo- uh, <coughs> pardon me, both legislative candidates would benefit. If they get money for their races, then then they're going to help the uh, other races, the other statewide races and congressional races. So they all have a reason to uh, to get along and share money. I guess if you want to put it that way. What do you think? Yeah, I mean you've got you've got at least three overlapping competitive races that are centered or, or based in Cameron County by population. So you've got this yeah. state house district thirty seven race. You've also got the state senate district. 27 race where uh, Democratic Senator Eddie Lucio is retiring. Uh, and then you have Myra Flores' mm-hmm. uh, congressional reelection campaign also yeah. uh, in Cameron County. And so, you know, like I said, there is a lot of Republican investment. And I think part of the, you know, I don't even know if it's strategy, but I think part of the incentive for Republicans to invest is that all these races that they're targeting or that they're prioritizing, they're all kind of overlapping right there in Cameron County. And so you would assume that the dot, you know, kind of the advertising dollar there, or the, you know, the get out the vote dollar um, goes a long way and can impact multiple races um, in the same place. Our, our guest is Patrick Zvitek from the Texas Tribune. We're talking about South Texas politics in general. And spe- speaking of all that, Spinnett, you wouldn't happen to have any uh, numbers on you, would you, about how much is being invested so far? No, I don't, but I know that in the the special election for Congressional District uh, 34 that Myra Flores won, um, you know, the Republican groups combined to spend over, you know, $1 million on TV ads. And I think once you throw in the money they spent on other things like mailers, for example, or like get out the vote efforts on the ground, I think the total price tag on the Republican side was, was above $3 million. So, you know, that was for uh. a special election. Um, you know, and quite frankly, for a national battleground race, um, that's kind of a bargain. I mean, usually these congressional races that are super competitive in November, um, you know, three, you know, three million is a fraction of the kind of money sometimes that they attract. And so, um, you know, I expect in, in Myra Flores' reelection campaign in November against Vicente Gonzalez, I mean, you're going to see, you know, several more million than maybe three million. So, I mean, that's the scale of investment we're talking about here. Hmm. From what from what you've seen, Republicans are willing to invest in that area. Yeah, um, not not local, but like state, state latest, and national. The latest financial numbers um, in the story that we wrote this week, we broke the news that the Republican State Legislative Committee, which is a national group, and then the Speaker of the Texas House, Dave Phelan, they're teaming up to spend three hundred sixty thousand dollars on TV ads across 
the two South Texas districts that they're prioritizing, one of them being HD 37. And so that's kind of one of the first big funding announcements um, we've heard uh, for these state house races in November. Whoa. Davis Rankin, your question. Uh, I guess it's too early unless you want to uh, go out on a limb and tell us what effect, if any, the raid on Trump world is going to have on this because it's got to jack up both sides. If they find something. You know, in these, the in these, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, in these targeted races in South Texas, I haven't seen much reaction. I mean, you know, for example, you look at someone like Myra Flores, I don't think that she has really commented on that raid or said anything either way about it. I know she, she is very active on Twitter, so I may have missed something. Um, but I haven't seen either the Democratic or Republican candidates in these races, um, you know, really uh, react to that so far. I mean, in Texas, we've seen, you know, the governor react to that. Some the U.S. senators react to that. Um, some folks and, you know, Republicans in safer seats react to that. But I, there has not been a lot of conversation in the competitive general election races to that from what I've seen. As far as the rest of the state of Texas, what are some other key races that we should be looking at? Yeah, at the state house level, the other race that's getting prioritized by both sides is House District 70. It is a new open seat up in Collin County. And um, the reason it's so important is because it is kind of emblematic of the suburban territory that has kind of drifted away from Republicans in yeah. recent election cycles. And so, you know, uh, you know, it is an opportunity for Republicans to put a new suburban seat in their column for the next, you know, potentially decade until the next round of redistricting. And so they're going to fight hard um, over that one. Um, and then you have, you know, you have some incumbents who are going to have competitive races. One of the, I guess, Democratic incumbents who's going to have a competitive race is Eddie Morales Jr. He is from Eagle Pass, and he represents a uh, sprawling, massive uh, district um, that basically includes, you know, Eagle Pass and that entire far west Texas Big Bend region. Um, you know, Donald Trump would have carried his, uh, you know, Donald Trump won his district in 2020, I think, by five or eight points. It was redrawn to be a little more favorable to Democrats, um, but it's still going to be a competitive race. Um, it's going to be a race where um, the Republican is going to be, you know, constantly trying to put him on the hot seat over Joe Biden's unpopularity, over issues at the border. Um, but Eddie Morales, to his credit, has shown some some independence from his party. As you noted in our story, he did not. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, when the, when the House Democrats last year fled to Washington, D.C. to break the quorum over the elections bill, um, he stayed behind. He didn't partake in that. Um, you know, he opposed the bill, of course, but he didn't believe that, you know, fleeing to uh, D.C. to oppose mm -hmm. it was the best step for him. Um, he's also been a little critical of the Biden administration when it comes to their handling of the border situation. Um, so he was kind of a unique incumbent, but he's no doubt uh, got uh, a competitive race in November. A little well, Patrick, suck to be them. Davis. Well, no, they're, they're going to, they've chosen to do it, but they're going to get pounded. It's going to be, I think it'll be a very nasty um, fall. And that that's not because somebody's bad or good. I just think it's going to be really, um, it'll be hard to sort through the vitriol. 
And I don't mean on Patrick's part. He sounds pretty calm and even-handed. <laughs> yeah, well, it's going to be close until it's no longer close. You know what I mean? That's that's how a lot of elections go. Like, you think it's going to be close, and then suddenly it's no longer close. You're like, whoa, that yeah. was unexpected. Well, Patrick, what, go ahead. Well, what's Before unexpected, we I think, is that uh, Abbott, Abbott's the, the 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 lead that Abbott has over his child Democratic over Beto. I'm sorry, is uh, a little narrower than I would expect. Like I'm an expert on this stuff, right? But it just seems like it's yeah, we ought to be we, further ahead. Yeah, we, we haven't seen a poll in, a, in a, I guess, three or four weeks now. But the last polling on the governor's race put it as close as five percentage points with, with uh, Beto O'Rourke, the Democratic opponent, trailing by five points. Um, so I think that that race, at least in the public polling, is too close for comfort. I think for Abbott, and uh, you know, if you have a tight uh, race at the top of the ticket, you're going to have down ballot effects. I mean, we saw that. The last time Beto O'Rourke ran statewide in Texas mm -hmm. in 2018, uh, granted it was a different environment, um, a little more favorable to Democrats, but you know Beto O'Rourke was able to keep that race against Ted Cruz close at the top of the ticket. I believe it was a three-point margin, and you saw the the effects of that down ballot. Democrats picked up um, 12 seats in the state house, picked up uh, two seats in the state senate, and picked up two seats in the oh. uh, congressional delegation. And so, um, you know, some of these state house candidates were talking about. Um, you know, are, are, are probably hoping um, for a certain if you're, you know, a Republican state house candidate, you want Abbott to really be, you know, running up the score at the top of the ticket yeah. to help you. Um, and right now, Abbott's not doing that, at least in the public polling. Hey, thanks for the report, Thank Patrick. You. That's Patrick Zvitek from the Texas Tribune. You can find his articles over at texastribune.org. This is News Talk 710 KURV, your 956 Drive Home. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands, your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 K U R B. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV.